Hello listener and welcome to The Last Line. My name is James Albarn. Hope you're all having a wonderful week. We're at episode five. Isn't that crazy? Thank you if you've been listening from the start. Thank you if you've just joined. And if you haven't subscribed yet, then please do. Subscribe at iTunes or wherever else you're listening to this podcast. We're available on a number of services now. And if you really want to support the show, then you can head over to patreon.com forward slash the last line to give us some of your hard-earned cash, which helps keep the show going. On this week's show, I speak to investigative journalist and documentary presenter Ellie Flynn. Um, Ellie has written for a number of magazines and newspapers and has presented three documentaries for BBC Three in which she usually goes undercover to expose issues affecting people across the UK. In our conversation recorded earlier this year, we discussed Ellie's documentary, Rent for Sex, which investigated landlords advertising their properties for free in exchange for sexual favours, our thoughts and insecurities around conducting interviews and being interviewed, and Ellie's experience with the world of catfishing. But first, we started at the beginning and how Ellie had made the move from journalism into documentary making. They, I mean, they were a bit of a surprise to be honest. I was working um, at The Sun online uh, as a news reporter um, and I'd written an article when I was freelance um, about this catfish experience I had. Um, I'd written it for Vice mm. and Popcorn got in contact with me and asked if I would be interested in being a contributor on a TV show. Um, about catfishing and I didn't really want to do that and then we came up with this idea of me potentially presenting a documentary about other people's catfish experience Um, and it didn't get we had lots of discussions lots of meetings I met with the BBC um, and then it didn't end up getting commissioned and we still were in contact and then um, Rory who's the executive producer at Popcorn came up with the idea of Ellie Undercover and yeah, we pitched a couple of ideas and um, they got they got commissioned. So it was I, re- I read your Vice article actually. Oh, did you? Yeah, I found it. Yeah. I was Googling. What um, do you think? Oh, it's, ho- it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite mad, yeah. It's I was what... going to ask you about it. So I guess now is you know, a natural time. Oh God, it's so weird because when I think back, it's actually, it's actually mental. Um, but at the time it just seemed so normal. So probably when we were around 14, I think we were in year 10, um, we found on MySpace that there were lots of fake profiles of us, uh, me and my friends from school. And um, so we reported them, someone had flagged them. And yeah, so, so there was like all these fake accounts that had our first names and different, different surnames. So, we reported them, they got taken down, and then they would just pop up like, again and again, no matter how many times we reported them, these fake profiles would, would come back up. And we kind of forgot about it. And then Facebook came around and we all got Facebook accounts. And then all these fake profiles popped up on Facebook as well. Um, and people would message us all the time being like, have you seen this fake profile of you? And I mean, there must have been about 80 to 100 fake accounts of um, all the people we knew, all the people we were friends with at school. Um, centred around one of my very good friends Um, and yeah so it was all of our boyfriends all of our sisters 
all these accounts and they would actively, all of these accounts would be active. So every time we went out on a night out, our fake accounts would upload all of the photos that we'd taken on that night out. Um, and then they'd comment on the photos. So my account would comment on my friend Sophie's account being like, oh, such a good night. We had so much fun. Um, and they'd actually be quite mean sometimes. Like they'd comment things like, oh God, look fat in this picture. I'm like, thanks. Um, but yeah, so for, so for years the, these accounts were active and they would start relationships with people. Um, I mean, I was in Malia once and some guy came up to me and my friend and was like, Ellie, um, Chia, how are you? And we were, we were just like looking at this guy like, who is he? Did we meet him last night? Have we forgotten who he is? And then he got his back up and was like, why are you being so weird with me? Like, why are you pretending you don't know who I am? And we were like, I'm really sorry. I don't know who you are. And then it became clear because it happened to us, I think, before. We were like, what do you think our names are? And he gave us the f- names of these fake accounts. We were like, that's not us. Like, they're fake accounts. And he was like, no, I speak, to her. I speak to you every night on the phone. I know it's you, you're lying. We had to get our driving license out to show him that that wasn't our name. We had to show him our actual Facebook profiles. And this guy was just completely like, amazed. He'd, he'd been speaking to this fake account for like, months, every night on the phone, uh, chatting to her on Facebook. Um, yeah, and things like that would just happen all the time. They were active for probably about eight years until, my vi- until I wrote the Vice article. Um, and the girl who, was, she said that she was a girl at my school a few years below. Don't know whether that's true. I never found out who it was. Um, but yeah, she, she said that she was going to stop and that she'd realised that it was weird. Um, and she'd tried to stop lots of times, but there was one guy in particular that she had an actual relationship with and she felt like she couldn't. She couldn't end it. So yeah, it's quite mad. There's that bit in the Vice article where you you start having a conversation with her. Yeah. And then she's and then you sort of reach an endpoint in the conversation, and then an hour later she blocks you. Yeah. Because oh, you know starts doing it again. Yeah, like, I can't even remember. Like, there's so <laughs> many mad things that happened. Um, but yeah, I think things like that used to happen. She would have a conversation. She'd message me off one of the fake accounts and be like, I'm really sorry, I can't stop. I know it's weird. And then she'd block me and be using them again. Um, I mean, I was blocked from loads of the accounts because you know, I've always like fancied myself a bit of an investigative journalist, even at the age of like 16. So I'd be trying desperately to track down who she was. Um, yeah, it was mad. It's really like, it's sort of like, was it, was it mad at the time or was it just sort of like, because yeah. you seem quite nonchalant about it, <laughs> whereas I think I'd be a bit freaked out. We definitely were freaked out. I mean, when, it fir- when we first found that, we were like, this is insane. Um, and I think we got our parents involved and we called the local police, community police officer and told our teachers. And this is like, I mean, 10 years ago. Mm. And obviously, I mean, the police now, I think, still, need, still don't even know what to do with these kind yeah. of fake accounts. So back then, they were just like, uh, don't use Facebook. And we were like, well, obviously we're going to use Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> How else are we going to go to all of our parties and organise them? Um, so, yeah, it just, it, I think there was no way we were going to delete our social media accounts. Like, as 15-year-old girls, that was never an option um, in our minds. So we just kind of got used to it. And then, yeah, it kind of did become this, this thing that I suppose we, was so normalised for us. And then when you think about it, it's actually insane. Yeah, I guess now catfishing is like so much more of a thing mm. that like well everyone sort of know, I think because of like 
the film and the TV series and stuff mm. has become much more of a thing. Is that why the BBC weren't necessarily like wanting to do it as a? I don't know. I think it was. I think it was a combination of things. To be honest, it's. I think with TV, um, it takes a long time to get things commissioned. Mm. As far as my two minutes experience has told me. Um, and yeah, I think it was sort of an idea that we that we were talking about, and then just never materialised. Yeah, but I suppose yeah, it's it's mad. Like, and sort of you saying that that now it's like a thing that lots of people know about and speak about, and there's been TV programmes about it. It's funny because for us, it was something that I don't think it even had the name catfishing when it was first yeah, given to us. Yeah, probably not. Because that came from the film, I think. Yeah, I, I remember that film coming out and being like, "Oh God, this is like what's happening to us." Mm. Um, so. Yeah, I think at the time, it definitely was really unusual and really weird. And I remember our parents being really concerned because they didn't really understand social media anyway and they mm. thought we probably shouldn't be on it. And it was like the dangers of the internet. And then they thought that there was probably some weird old man in a shed somewhere who had all of our photos and was sparking up relationships with young men with them. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's weird. It's weird as well. I... That you almost think like now because of that TV show, there is some something almost normal to it. You know what I mean? It's not it's not as crazy now when you hear that story. Yeah. Um, but then to actually meet someone who's been like had that done to them is like even you know it's like an extra step. It's easy to sort of like go, oh yeah, but it happens a lot, you know. And then, yeah. It's like a mad news story. Yeah. And then when you actually hear it firsthand, I suppose that, that makes yeah. it kind of more real. Um, yeah. It is, yeah, and, and it's something that I never think about. And then every now and then it will come back up in conversation and I'll become absolutely obsessed with it. And I'll be like desperately trying to track down who it is. And I mean, yeah, I feel like I, I will I'll never... Um, I have to find out who it is at some point. Yeah, yeah. Not for any reason. Like, I'd never even share it. I'd never confront them just for my own peace of mind because we spent years and years and years hypothesising over who it might be. And so every every week we'd have a new, you know, a new idea of who it might be. It was, like, someone's ex-boyfriend or, like, mm. a girl in our year. Or, like, I think at one point we thought it was one of our friend's mums. Um, yeah, <laughs> we never got, any clo- never got any closer to the, uh, <laughs> to the uh, truth. Is it sex for rent or rent for sex? It's rent for sex. Rent for sex. Sorry, I called it sex for rent by accident. Uh, it's, no, it's just because it, upstairs we were having uh, internal, we were having eternal debates. Right. As to whether it was, because it's a difficult one to remember in terms of which way around it is. It has been called both. We call it rent for sex. Rent for sex. Because we were like, because then it got into the debate of like, does it matter which way the words are? For it to make sense, if you know what I mean. Because for a while I was arguing that if it's rent for sex, then you're you're getting rent in exchange for sex. Yes. Which is that's that seems to make sense. Which makes sense, yeah. yeah. Whereas I I I was going by if if it's sex for rent. It sounds like you're renting sex. Yes. Yeah. 
But then someone else pointed out that gra really grammatically it doesn't actually doesn't actually make a difference which way around it is. But then I'm not sure. I don't know. We call it Rembrandt. Let's just stick with that. It was a long, it was like a week long debate. <laughs> a busy Tuesday afternoon. It was like, hang on, which way? Hold up. Um, so rent for sex. Yes. See, I've written sex for rent. Why have I done that? <laughs> <laughs> it's so confusing. We call it Rent for Sex. That's yeah. the documentary's called. I think that's what Look up Rent for Sex. If you're looking for <laughs> the documentary, look up Rent for Sex. Yes. So um, your your films are built around you going undercover, which I quite like. Yeah. Because it is it is completely different to other stuff that's currently on. No, it definitely does feel like something that's new and exciting. Um, and... I am really excited by it. I've loved working on it. Um, obviously it works because I've not done any presenting work before, so I can go undercover. Um, I feel like it wouldn't work for like more well-known presenters because <laughs> they'd be like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, hey Louis. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I, I think it is, yeah, it is like an exciting, an exciting um, new format that I've, I've loved working on. But um, Is it a worry that, that slowly like you'll start to not be able to... Yeah, someone asked me this the other day, actually, and I suppose, obviously, the more I do them, the more likely it is mm. that someone... I think it's just chance, because I actually don't think that... I think I have got a face that's quite... I look different all the time, lots of people tell me. Um, and I think that... Also, there's lots of documentaries I watch that I wouldn't recognise the presenter afterwards. Like, there's people who I'm huge fans of. There's, like, Stacey Lee, Louis Theroux, Livy Haydock, mm. Reggie Yates. I'd recognise all of them. Um, but lots of other documentary makers, I've watched them present things and I wouldn't, I wouldn't notice them if I saw them on the train tomorrow. Um, and I feel like I'll probably fall into that category. But the chances, obviously, someone's just happened to watch it last night mm. and then I'm in there undercover with a shirt can the next day and they're like, yeah, I watched you. Um, so I think probably the more I do it, the more likely it is that someone might clock. Like in both of the films, you, you put on wigs and like you dye your hair and the only thing I wondered was like, did you feel that that was necessary sort of straight off the bat? Like, <laughs> I think it was more of a stylistic thing. Um, it was like for the, more for the film. Or, yeah. 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 Um, I mean, I didn't think that, didn't think that the beauticians <laughs> in Wigan were going to be like, I know who you are. Um, yeah, it was a stylistic thing, um, which we think worked. And also, I mean, with Rent for Sex, for example, it's just like when, like part of it was sending my photo mm. to these guys um, felt weird. Yeah. And so it was quite nice to be able to put on a wig and loads of heavy makeup, which I'd never normally wear, and use a really grainy camera so that I looked so different in that photo that that's all they've got of me and they can't, they don't have an actual photo where I look like me for the rest of sure. their lives. Did you, uh, was, was part of the wig as well, like, did it help putting that on to sort of get into, because in a way you're sort of acting, aren't you, really? Like, yeah. In, in a weird way, you're sort of, you're not, you've got to put up a little bit of a, a front in a way because. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I suppose, I suppose it helped, in a like, way. sort of, you know, shield yourself from like these weird guys. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Kind of distances yourself yeah. from it. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, so. to be honest, I didn't think of it like that at the time. It was just like, mm. okay, put my, put my wig on. Um, I look different. If I bumped into one of them tomorrow, they might not recognise me. 
because also a, lot, a couple of them I met, quite a few of them I met were in London, um, and I live in London, mm. and there's a chance that you just might see them again, and, and it wouldn't be very nice if they were like, yo, Julia, when you come to live with me. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. To be honest, it was, it was actually just really uncomfortable. It was so hot. <laughs> oh, right, I thought you meant the process. Or... No, 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 the wig. <laughs> <laughs> That's my main memory of it. So you didn't... You must have felt slightly uncomfortable, like, sitting with, especially, like, the guys. Yeah, yeah, I did. I was genuinely really trying to think about what I would feel like if I was there um, as someone genuinely looking for a room. Because I'm physically safe. I, mm. you know, I've got a producer in, in the cafe with me. My director's outside. There's a, a big team. Well, there's a team of us um, all stationed nearby. So I didn't ever feel physically scared. But... These like well, of course it's uncomfortable when you've got like someone asking you for sexual favours over a coffee at eleven a.m. Um, in East London. It's a bit early, isn't it? <laughs> a little bit early it's for all that. Bit... Come on, had like, lunch you know, yeah, maybe two o'clock. Fine, <laughs> yeah. like we can start talking you know? about it. But... Exactly, um, and it's kind of you know you're conscious when you're in it when when you're in a public space that someone might overhear you. And then you're sat in a cafe and it's kind of in a corner. And then mm. that also makes them feel more conscious um, that, that someone might overhear the conversation. So it was quite weird. But I, wouldn't, I felt, yeah, I suppose I did feel uncomfortable. Um, but I, didn't, I wouldn't say I felt frightened. Mm. Um, it was more uncomfortable that these men are actually asking for this. And that there are real women um, and men who are responding to these adverts. Yeah. Because they have to. There's a bit in the film at the end, towards the end where you sort of you set this guy up effectively, sort of well you don't set him up. But he comes to meet and you've got this charity with you and you want to have a conversation with him and he sort of storms out. Talk me through how you sort of convinced him to come back in because yeah. So actually the charity did organise their meeting. Right. That was their yes. plan. Um, and we just went along with them. Um, but so he, yeah, he stormed out. And we just went outside and um, the girl from the charity was speaking to him. And I just said, you know, I just said, I want to hear your side of the story. There's, we've spoken to people who have taken up these agreements. I've spoken to other landlords. And I just think that, you know, we're here now, it would be really important to hear why you're doing this and to try and understand it, to try and learn from your point of view. Um, and he agreed in the end. I didn't get the impression that he walked away thinking, I won't do this anymore. No, nor did I. <laughs> I mean, he says, I think, that he couldn't, he couldn't yeah. say he wouldn't. Um, this is the thing, it's... I mean, he did say that he... He did say that he wouldn't ask f for sex again. Um, but it was, it was a bit unclear. I don't, I don't know. I can't say for sure that, that he would or wouldn't. But I think this is the issue with it. Unless... I think a lot of these landlords don't understand the moral issue. Mm. Um, and I think you can put it to them and say, but can you understand that I might be vulnerable, I might be desperate, I might sleep with you because of a, sense, like a feeling of fear or obligation. And... I think if they don't understand that, then the only thing they might understand is this is illegal. Um, and if you do it, you might go to prison because I just, uh, yeah, I just didn't, didn't get a sense that a lot of them really understood why this was wrong or thought they were doing anything wrong at all. Mm. 
I think with people, it's like if there's a sort of there's a slight grey area. I mean, you did you do say in the in the film that technically it is actually illegal and they could get done for it for is it like inciting prostitution? Yeah, incitement into prostitution. But to I feel like for them, it's like a moral grey area because they're like, well, I'm not forcing them to. Yeah. And they can't wrap their heads around how yes, you're not physically pinning them down and but they need somewhere to live and their only option is to live with you who's going to take it's that issue of consent um and it's you know it's something that comes up all the time where people might have sex with someone because they feel they have to or because they're scared or because they are drunk or for like for lots of different Mm. reasons and that doesn't mean that it's consensual and I think that's the issue with people in a lot of these arrangements is first of all I don't think you can really consent if your alternative is destitution it's survival sex you're Mm. you're having sex with this person because the alternative is being on the streets and potentially being you know aggressively raped or or dealing with all the other things that come with being a woman on the streets and so that's that doesn't really feel to me like like consent in a lot of cases um and just yeah I think I think just generally they potentially a lot of the landlords don't understand that and they think I'm, I'm giving someone a helping hand you know if it wasn't for me she would be on the streets and this is better I'm not asking very much out of it it's quite a lot to ask though, I mean yeah it? but like, of course it is I think that's <laughs> especially the guy who wants her to sleep in her bed every night I, I was, know that was that was the bit that and I don't know what this says necessarily about me as a person, but that was the bit that, that shocked me. The other, the other guy is asking him sexual favor. It didn't sort of shock me. It's like, it's kind of like, it's sad and, and it shouldn't happen. But I was like, it was quite, it was clear to me that these guys existed. Yeah. But the guy who wanted the, you to sleep in his bed with him every night, that, that I sort of couldn't wrap my head around, like how he could think that that would be normal. I don't know. But a lot of them were bed-sharing arrangements advertised. Oh, really? Yeah. So it um, wasn't that guy that was just... I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the adverts on Craigslist right. are, are offering bed-sharing arrangements. That's not unheard of. Um, another of the guys I met actually was offering a bed-sharing arrangement. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's... And that's the thing. Pe- people have said since that, um, you know, lot there be, might be people who think this is a good agreement, that they think it's a good alternative to, to sleeping on the streets. Um, or they might just not want to pay rent and think that, you know, I don't mind, it works for me. It's kind of an, uh, an alternative sex work. And I just, I mean, I've, I, you know, I'll stand to be corrected, but I've not, I couldn't find anyone who thought that way during my mm. investigation. And I just think to put your life so entirely in someone else's hands, to have actually nowhere to go, I think that, you know, I think that turning to sex work because you, you're desperate, I can understand that, but at least then you can pay for some rent. And I think that to actually just put yourself so completely in someone's hands where, you've, yeah, you're powerless. I just think that you have to be so desperate to be in that situation. Yeah. And the guy, who, I think it's the same guy who says about the about sharing the bed he you ask if you can 
Is it the same guy you ask if you can speak to someone who who has yeah, done that arrangement yeah. before? And it struck me how sort of openly positive he was towards that idea. Yeah. As if he thought that she would be like, it was great. Well, this is the thing, I think. And, you know, he says, um, he says afterwards that, that he doesn't think he did anything wrong. Um, I mean, she said that she left and returned over, uh, she, he said that she left and returned over an extended period. Um, and he thought that that meant she was happy. Um, and it just, I think it shows how, dif- how different two people's perceptions of one situation can be. Um, obviously for her it was, it was traumatic and it was awful. Mm. Um, and in his mind he, he genuinely was, was helping her. This film seems to have been like reported on a lot and you've, you've been on the news a bit and it's been like picked up by a few papers and stuff. Do you feel like it's something that's going to change or, you know? I hope so. I really do hope so. Um, I think that it is something that's been spoken about quite widely in the press and there's definitely um, a big push to try and get this. I don't, think, I don't even know what the solution is. There's, you know, I, I mentioned in the documentary that there's this vacuum of responsibility where it seems to be there's a number of people who could, who could do more to help this. You know, Craigslist haven't responded to any requests for a comment on this issue. They don't appear to be taking down any of the adverts. They took down two of the ones I flagged out of 20. Um, the police are saying they're not having anything reported, so how can they, uh, how can they police something that, that's not being reported to them? That doesn't... <laughs> the, police say, the police say that they're not having this reported to them um, yeah. and so can't do anything. And then the government say that there is a law that's already in place, but it's really unclear. And I, I, yeah, I think hopefully the solution is for the police and the government to work together to either make clearer laws um, that specifically relates to the sex for rent issue, or that the police look at these adverts and, and, and decide whether posting an advert in itself is in fact incitement to prostitution because the, just, the former justice secretary says it is. So I suppose they just need to try and test that in a court of law. Yeah. And maybe that will act as some sort of preventative measure for these guys, I don't know. Yeah, it's just, I don't know, I just feel like, I feel like even if there is a law. Yeah, I mean. I, I, I agree with you, totally, but yeah, you worry that it's just. Of course, and I but mean. But then if it discourages, even if it discourages, discourages like two guys from doing it, it's still. That's something. Yeah. And you t- that's the things I think, I mean, you look at the history of, of. Um, prosecutions for rape, for example, and it's terrible. It's so hard to get a pot like a conviction. And so, if you have seemingly voluntarily gone and stayed in someone's house and slept with them because you didn't really have anywhere else to go and you felt obliged because that's what they've asked you for, that that is such a difficult, difficult case to. I mean, how how can I just? I think in that situation, you would. Of course, you'd feel like you're not going to be taken seriously, and that's something that came up with with women I spoke to. Yeah. Um, throughout the documentary, they were, they sort of said, "Well, who's going to listen to me? I went there," and that's really sad because how do we fix this problem? Hmm. How if if the victims feel like no one's going to listen to them, um, and the perpetrators don't think they're doing anything wrong and they're giving them a helping hand, then 
there needs to be some sort of societal shift where we understand that this is an issue and this is a terrible abuse of power. Yeah. If, yeah, that seems to be, the, I don't know how we're going to do that. But no, that I, went to the, the I, went, I went to the um, Women's March and just as we were leaving, uh, my friend who I went with, she wanted to get a picture of us with our with the Women's March banners. Yeah. And as as someone was taking a picture of us with these banners, a, a bloke walked past with his family, pointed at me and said, it says Women's March, not Men's March, and walked off. Oh, and you're like, I feel like you're slightly missing the yeah. point there. <laughs> you're missing the point completely. And he was so sort of smug and you could tell that he 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 had no idea that what he was saying was part of the issue if you see yeah, what I mean. like yeah. he, he he was completely convinced that this was like a normal thing yeah to say well that's the thing i think we still have such a huge way to go in terms of equality just to, even in terms of the way that that we think about women and women's issues and this is you know like you say that that is an example of it mm. and the rent for sex issue is like a huge extension of that and it's just and that keep to keep going back to this point that the landlords don't necessarily understand they're doing anything wrong it's like this sort of prince charming idea where they are this hero who can save a woman from destitution and all shit and you know for example the guy who um the guy who i met who offered me the bed sharing arrangement was saying you can keep your pyjamas on, you don't have to sleep with me straight away, or you don't have to sleep with me, we can discuss it at a later date. And I think it's this idea that I'm not asking for anything, I'm helping them, it's just nice to have companionship. Yeah. And, and, and then they can't understand why that's a problem. And I think that lots of these guys on Craigslist, maybe not, maybe not all of them are asking for sex, they might be asking you for you to just walk around in your underwear, or for you to do something, do some cleaning in a maid's outfit. And that's still a problem. And they can't, yeah. I think that because they think they're not, they're not forcefully raping you, that you, it's just a great arrangement that why wouldn't you be up for that? Because you're desperate and this is amazing. Look how great mm. I am. Such a white knight. It like does and doesn't surprise me like all at the same time. It's kind of mm. like shocking, but at the same time you're like, you probably know guys that would, would be like that. You well, know this I mean? is the thing, and this is what I was most shocked by, is I 100% went into it with a preconception of who I was going to be meeting. It's like, it's probably going to be older men, quite lonely, maybe divorced, and just mm. like a, a bit creepy maybe, looking for some company um, and sex. And it was such a mixed bag of people, such a mixed bag. I mean, I met... Two, one guy my age, one guy younger, and I know I met rich men with like a, f a four beds house that they were renting, like offering all the rooms up, and then I met a man who's just offering his. He lives in a house share in East London, and he was offering to share his room. You know, it's this huge, huge range of people, mm. um, and it made me realise this really could be anyone. I could have known a number of those guys in different situations in my life. You know, it might have been someone my dad knows, uh, might have been someone I work with, yeah, yeah. might have been my mate. I mean, the 25-year-old, that to me, I just couldn't, I just could not get my head around that. I was like, I could be your friend. Yeah. 
Well, I think as well, I think part of the problem is as well, and it, it, it goes to a more societal thing, is that if it was the other way around, so it was a woman offering a man to stay in exchange for sex, I think a lot of men would be like, oh yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Mm. It's not a sort of as common dynamic, if you see what I mean. It's not, and I, I didn't find um, any fem- sort of female landlords offering yeah. it up in the same way. Were there any male landlords looking for male? Yeah, lots of male landlords looking for male. Um, but obviously I couldn't go undercover and meet them. Yeah. But this is 100% isn't just an issue that affects women. Um, it affects men as well. And I think that, okay, and this is sort of something I've seen in lots of the comments after the documentary is men commenting being like, what's the problem? Sounds like a great deal. Yeah. Um, and maybe some men would think like that, but actually, I think even it's still that abuse of power. This is a gender issue, but also it's, a, it's an issue of, of power. And I think that if there was a young man who was homeless and had nowhere to go, and an older woman was offering him somewhere to stay, but asking for him to do things, I, that would still be traumatic for him. Yeah, totally. Um, because it's it's again just pre- like it's preying on people who are desperate and i think and it must be traumatic for all of the men who are forced into this situation to stay with men i think that it of course it is a gender issue in a sense but i do think that it's it is way more about power and the abuse mm. of power So what's it been like for you? Um, because obviously usually you're a writer. Yes. What's it been like for you to like now step in front of the camera and present? Yeah. <laughs> Weird. Because um, I've never done any broadcast before. So it was a complete um, jump into the deep end. Mm. Um, and I think my director, Chloe, had to have a lot of patience with me at the beginning. Um, but no, it's been fun. I've really, really enjoyed it. I like. I think with with documentaries, what's really nice is you actually have a lot of time. Yeah. And you have time to sort of build up relationships with contributors, and you can. It doesn't really matter how long you interview someone for, and you, you just get things a lot more personal than it is when you're on the phone trying to get some top lines out of someone and, and then writing it up. So I really, really enjoyed it as a journalist. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, yeah, it definitely was like a weird, weird jump into the unknown. Did the did the undercover parts of filming sort of feel more natural to you than than maybe the um, like when you're at home and you're 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 being like, and now we're going to go and do this or now? You know, yeah, now I suppose I'm so. Pinning up things on the wall and stuff was that was the undercover bit sort of more natural because it's more journalisticy. Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say the undercover and the interviews, mm. um, I definitely took more naturally to than the sort of piece to camera pieces. Um, that took a while for me to get my head around, I think. Mm. Um, it's just, it's weird. It's a new skill. It's something that I've not done before. Um, I didn't really know how to do. But I, yeah, I worked with such an amazing team um, who had lots of patience and lots of advice and lots of experience. So I don't think the shows would have been anything without them. <laughs> Were they the first, like, documentaries you'd ever made? Yeah. 
so because I knew it was the first like sort of that were on TV. I didn't know if you'd made any like shorts or anything like. No, literally. It was always nothing. writing, and then this just happened, and. Yeah, exactly. Literally nothing. I've got zero TV experience, um, and I yeah just used to write. Was it ever an ambition that was it ever something you wanted to to go into, or were you yeah. always comfortable just being a writer and being a journalist that way? Yeah, so I always wanted to be a journalist since I was, I mean, so young. I think I told my mum when I was about 10 that I was going to be a journalist. Um, and I, when I went to do my, so I went to uni, did English, and then when I did my master's, I was weighing up whether to do magazine or broadcast. Um, and I went with magazine in the end and then ended up working in newspapers. So I've kind of like made my way through sort of lots of different um, formats. Um, so yeah, I had... I mean, everyone isn't sort of everyone's dream to be Louis Theroux one day. <laughs> He's the king of documentaries. So I'd, I'd always sort of watch programs like that and be like, oh, that would be an amazing job. But it kind of felt like a, um, you know, a pipe dream. Um, so I never, I never really thought it would happen and never actively pursued it. So it's been, uh, yeah, it's been incredible, but mm. it's definitely been luck more than anything. What was it that made you want to be a journalist then, especially like, not many 10-year-olds have been like, yeah, I'm going to be a journalist. <laughs> yeah, I don't really know. I think my mum my always just says that I was so young. I always loved writing, um, mm. always loved to gossip, loved telling stories. Um, and I don't know if it's something that like my mum had said to me when I was young, like, oh, you'd make a good journalist one day. And I was like, that's what I'm going to be. Yeah. Um, but I just, yeah, I, I always like, enjoyed, I always like, loved the news, even when I was quite young. Um, and it just felt like something I'd, uh, I'd really want to do. Yeah, it definitely sort of, as I, as I went through secondary school, became something I thought more seriously about and then I kind of tailored all my subjects to it and went mm. to uni with the idea of trying to, trying to make a career in it. And here you are. And here I <laughs> am. <laughs> I've not done any interviews before, I've never been interviewed. Mm. Um, and it's such a weird experience and I constantly feel like I don't know what I've said after I finished. I'm like, I could have honestly just been chatting shit for the past hour and I wouldn't have a clue. I'm probably going to listen back to this and be like, oh my God, <laughs> delete it. <laughs> um, yeah. But is it, do, do you, do you find that interviews like, I've, I've asked this actually to two or three of my, of my guests yeah. so far. Um, do you like being interviewed or do you find it all a bit weird and it's a bit weird. It's a bit odd, isn't I it? I just, yeah. I think for me, I still feel... I don't know. I just don't feel like I'm... Yeah. It just feels weird. I still feel very new into this. Mm. And, like, I still feel very young. And I'm just like, oh, my God, why are you interviewing me? <laughs> I don't have a clue. Um, but, no, it's, yeah. It, this has been a chat. It's been nice. Well, that's, that's good. Yeah, I forget. Yeah. I forget that I'm being interviewed until I look down and see... Mm. Sean Keaveney <laughs> said to me that um, he thinks that anyone who says they don't like being interviewed is being disingenuous because everyone likes talking about themselves. Really? Yeah. Maybe I'm a complete liar then. <laughs> Maybe you're being disingenuous. I've told you. Is... But I don't know. I, I, I think if I was on the other side of it, I, I think I'd find it a bit weird. But then I find it a bit... See, I don't know how you feel in interviewing other people because I feel sort of weird on the other side, uh, on this side 
like interviewing you. You're in the right job. <laughs> <laughs> Should I be doing this? I don't know. I don't know. Um, like I really like every every podcast I've I've done. I've come away from being like I I wish I could do this like just do this like all the time. Yeah. Um, because I really enjoy doing it. But I think I think I feel like I'm. Whereas you probably feel a bit self, sort of self-conscious being interviewed. I feel self-conscious interviewing other people. Really? Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you ever feel like... You probably don't. Um, um, I, don't I think it's... I mean, you always come away from an interview with a question that you forgot to ask. Mm. Or, like, you come away and you go, oh, that's so obvious. Why didn't, I, why didn't I do that? And I think that comes with experience, probably. Um, and there's, there's a thousand questions that you can ask anyone. Um, and actually half the stuff that you do ask ends up getting cut anyway, so it doesn't really mm. matter. Um, but yeah, you, I mean, I'm, I'm quite a perfectionist as well, so I'm constantly beating myself up about things I didn't do, things I didn't ask, and things I did wrong. Um, so I get, I get that. Mm. And then this is kind of, I suppose, the same thing. I'm just like, oh God, am I going to come across like a dickhead? <laughs> I don't know. I have sleepless nights now <laughs> until, until this is released. I think the thing for me was like, because I've made a couple of documentaries, I was like, oh, yeah, I can interview people. That's fine. But it's so different because my documentaries as well, I, I wasn't in front of the camera. I was behind the camera filming everything and then just asking questions now and again. And... Um, it's so different doing that where you can hide behind a camera for the start. So it feels like there's something separating you yeah. from, from having to sort of be verbose and, you know, um, and also, you know, when you're doing a documentary, especially if you're filming it as well, you can just sort of be silent for a bit and just mm. film what they're doing. And then if something comes up, you can ask a question and then you can look like a genius because you've asked the question at the right time. But really, there's like two hours of footage beforehand where you're just yeah. like, you know, watching them walking around or whatever. Um, but like this is a lot more sort of intimidating in a way because I have to like, because it is much more of a conversation, which is what I want it to be. Yeah, I want it to be all conversational. Mm. And then I'm scared that because I'm trying to process questions, I don't want it to be awkward and like have awkward gaps and even though yeah. I know I'll cut them but they want to be awkward for you and yeah yeah oh, so, I know you mean. So it's like a minefield of yeah. things that I wasn't expecting yeah coming into it and also you never know what the if you've not met them you never know what the person you're interviewing is mm. going to be like and some people find it easy some people you know take some warming up find it quite yeah. difficult to to speak um, obviously I've been rambling for an hour <laughs> so yeah but it's true though because you get like you get like Sean Keaveney, who because he's a radio broadcaster, he can just chat for hours because that's what he does every morning and yeah. he has to. So you can ask him one thing and he'll go on about it for half an hour because mm. that's just the way he is and he'll fill gaps and stuff because that's just the way he is. It's a skill I suppose. Yeah. One that I'm still working on. So <laughs> am I. <laughs> I'm sure we will be forever. <laughs> So there you have it, Ellie Flynn. My thanks to Ellie for doing the show and my thanks to you, the listener, for joining us this week. I do hope you come back next time when I'll be having a lovely chat with Jack Burke 
of the band City Calm Down. Remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you are listening to the show. Uh, we're on Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, Blueberry, and of course iTunes. And if you really want to be part of the Last Line team, then you can go and donate to the show at patreon.com forward slash the last line. Episode 5 done. As you'll notice, I've been keeping my intros and outros brief this week i've been told that i sound a bit like alan partridge at times so trying to keep that to a minimum although i'm not sure if i will ever be able to because don't we all want to be partridge really so until next time i've been james alban and this is the last line aha uh-huh.